And good morning, Lumpol. Good morning, Rajana Salko. So today is Friday, the 18th of March. Thank you for taking some time to share some Dhamma with us again. Last, last question and answer session we did, uh, you were talking about grasping. And so I was wondering if you had any further reflections to share on grasping the way we grasp at our experience and create an identity out of that grasping. Well, grasping is a function of the senses, you know, say what you see, you concentrate on, if you like it, if you don't like it, you look away or deny its existence. So grasping is, is just natural to the conditioned realm. And that's why when we grasp out of ignorance, out of not understanding Dhamma or ultimate reality, then the grasping becomes habitual, both in terms of holding on or resisting. So, I mean, because the, we are creatures of habit, our bodies are our habit form and what we think and believe and, and our emotions are habit, habitual patterns that you can trace from early part of your life to the present. So, our refuges in Dhamma are in consciousness because consciousness isn't, uh, isn't a condition. You can't grasp consciousness. You know, much as scientists and psychologists at this time are trying to define or objectivize consciousness, they can't do it because it's nothing you can grasp. You can't grasp what you really are. But you can, what we grasp is what we're not. And this is out of ignorance, out of avicca in the Pali term for ignorance, not understanding. Dhamma, not understanding the ultimate truth, but in the way we're conditioned to, to react, to perform, to believe, uh, to think everything that, that is changeable and mutable, we tend to identify with and grasp. And so the advice of the Buddha in his teaching is to let go. Not, to, it doesn't mean let go of the grasping tendency. To, to see the grasping tendency, you have to know what it is. You can't just, uh, you know, out of your intellect decide you're not going to grasp anything. You, that's impossible because you, you don't understand what, what it means to grasp conditions because it's so much a part of what we're conditioned to do from uh, the ego, from the cultural conditioning, religious conditioning, social conditioning. You know, we're asked to believe, to agree, to, or to reject, to make judgments, value judgments about everything. And that's how we're conditioned to operate and with these forms 
that such as, you know, the forms are in space. And the space is in consciousness. So consciousness, you can't get beyond it. You, be, you know, you can't like try to see your own eyes. There's no way you can see your own eyes in any direct way. You can look at a reflection in a mirror is about the best we can do. But that's not the object of the eyes, is that they, their function is seeing. And consciousness, you can't find it as an object, even though you know at this moment you're conscious. So by letting go of conditions, phenomena that we bind ourselves to, limit ourselves with, that we resist or indulge in, by seeing the, the suffering we create through this habitual, these habitual patterns that we're addicted to, we have the insight begin to realize that we're not these conditions. That lying behind all conditions is the unconditioned or the unborn, uncreated, unformed. And so, the Buddha said in a, in a sutta, I like to quote from the Nibbana Sutta, is there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Now you can't imagine that. Try to imagine anything that's unborn, unformed, uncreated, unconditioned. All you can do is maybe create a word for it, like unborn, a negation of born, created, formed, and conditioned. But with mindfulness, you begin to see that when you try to figure out, try to imagine the unborn, the thinking mind can't do it. It's, it's beyond its ability to create an image because there's no image to it. It has no image, it has no quality other than the conscious knowing that this moment is like this. So I used to, uh, years ago, I used to contemplate you know, in trying to imagine the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. You know, and I would experiment, I just watch myself do this. What is the, uh, what is of uh, something unborn, and it, you you can't find anything in, in imagery to, to satisfy that demand. But you stop thinking. You stop just this proliferating thought habit to try to imagine something that's unimaginable. And you begin to notice that that silence behind the forms, the conditions, is silence. And that's con that consciously no silence is like this. It's, if you want to call it silence or emptiness or these words that you can call it the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, because when you give up trying to define and describe and give qualities to that which is beyond quality, that which has no quality other than pure presence here and now, 
You know, so you're always in the present moment. You know, throughout, when you really reflect on time, time is, is, is about forms. Like your body is a time-bound condition. Your thoughts begin and end. What you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, all arises and ceases. Where does it arise and cease from? You know, what is it? Where does it go once it see, once it's, once you stop thinking? Once, when you close your eyes, what happens to a vision? Plug up your ears, what happens to the sound? But you can blindfold yourself, put earplugs in your ears, close your nose off, tape your mouth shut. You can still think. But if you stop thinking, that's conscious awareness. That's unborn. You don't create it. You don't, you can't imagine unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So we have these words, you know, the Buddha was very skillful in, in language, so that he said, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So there is an escape. There is a way out from just being bound to the form, the created, the born, the created, the form, the condition. Because that's what bondage is. It's binding ourselves to these limited conditions that we identify some are good, some are not good. They have, conditions all have qualities. Condition phenomena is karma. You know, karma is about cause and effect, about birth and death, beginning and endings. So Buddha's advice is to notice the ending of things. And that takes patient endurance. Because I noticed in myself, you know, when I first started meditating with Lung Kortra, you know, and his emphasis on patient endurance, that my whole habit patterns were impatient. When there was a silent moment, I wanted to fill it with thoughts or there's something to do, something to imagine, something to remember, something to grasp hold of, anything, whether it's positive or negative. So, you know, just like in a, in a conversation with somebody, when the silence happens, everybody becomes uncomfortable. They want to fill it up because communication, as we identify it, is about speaking to each other, filling the space, the gaps, the silence with sound. So when I talk about sound of silence, I'm talking about silence, really, to, to recognize. It's not something you hear. It's not a sound in the, in the sense of uh, sound has a beginning and ending. Sound of silence doesn't have a beginning or ending. And as you investigate it, this is, you know, this is something to investigate.
to to prove to yourself that you know that Buddha gave the directional signs, but it's us, uh, you know, it's it's each one of us must go in that direction, which is always here and now. You know, it's not really a path that has any length to it. It's not a condition. All paths are sankaras or conditions. But it's all, you end up always with this here and now awakening because the present moment is experienced here and now. It's like this. And that's all there is in life is the present moment. That's what we experience. And that's eternity, timelessness. So in modern parlance, eternity tends to be time that has no beginning and ending. But that doesn't make any sense because in terms of insight into reality itself, silence doesn't begin and end. Consciousness doesn't begin and end, doesn't, isn't born and die. But forms come and go just in a daily experience, you know, like thoughts drift through consciousness, they manifest and cease in consciousness. What we see manifests in consciousness and ceases in consciousness. So consciousness is always the the vehicle, or the, it's not really a vehicle, but it's the presence where the unmanifest can, the manifestations come from the unmanifest. Now try to imagine that, put that into words that make sense, because the unmanifest you can't imagine, you can't define. But when we talk about unmanifest, unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, as the reality of here and now, when you stop thinking, when there's that gap between the words, you suddenly re awaken to the reality of consciousness is like this. But it gets ignored when we're trying to figure out what consciousness is, when we're trying to figure out what letting go is, what non-grasping is. <clears throat> so I remember, you know, having insight into uh, letting go of conditions. So then I attached to the concept of letting go. And what I found out of what I was doing it worked for a while very well. Just, it kind of cleared out a lot of habitual patterns and thoughts and feelings that I, you know, had held on to most of my life. But then the attachment to the words letting go, we have to let go of. <laughs> it's, 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 and letting go isn't getting rid of things. So what I was doing, you know, as I found out after a while, the, the mantra of letting go was not working because I was using it to stop thinking, to, to get rid of thought rather than letting thought cease. 
So when I'm somebody who's trying to stop thinking, I can't do it. I can't stop as an entity, as a personality, as, as an ego. It's conditioned to think. And that's what it does. It thinks. But all those thoughts, all those memories, all those sensory perceptions, space and time themselves are perceptions, they're conditions. So space and time are conditioned and they manifest in consciousness. So this is quite amazing when you, when you have this insight for yourself. It's not a belief, it's, a, it's an examination of the here and now. And this way, when I say trust your awareness, I don't mean you trust your views and opinions about yourself or the world or anyone else's. You know, not, not about believing in what the teacher says or what the Bible says or the scriptures or what the, your, your teacher tells you or what the, you know, whatever you, it's a, it's a perception that we grasp blindly. Or is it letting go is, is just, is a suggestion to, co to conscious awareness to relax, let go of the conditioned realm and realize that reality that's always here and now, wherever you, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, lying down, awake or sleep, consciousness doesn't cease. When we get down to the nitty-gritty of the practice, what is your experience of actually looking at grasping? You had that you had that image the other day of grasping as a clenching your fist hard and feeling what that feels like and then opening the fist, opening the hand and feeling what letting go is like. But in terms of practice, can you give me some examples of looking at grasping and seeing the suffering of it? Well, just like memories. Um, In my early years at Wapapong and with Lumpa Cha, you know, I had a lot of time to be alone in my kuti and a lot of unpleasant memories arose. And so then I, I had the insight into letting go, but I tended to want to suppress the memories, you know, just saying they're empty phenomena and they're not selves. So you can apply these, these teachings to, to phenomena, but they're still phenomena. Letting go is still words, and that's a phenomenon. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good advice, it's good direction. But what, what is the reality of letting go is, is really uh, more like relaxation. 
like the fist that you release, you relax that and you don't have to cut off your hand or try to pry your fingers from their grip. You just relax. You can see tensions in your body as you're aware of the way your shoulders hold tension or your your solar plexus, you feel certain movements or uncomfortable feelings is a sign of grasping. So you go to that and, and allow it to be what it is. You're not trying to get rid of it. You're patiently allowing the condition to be what it is, no matter whether it's physical pain or emotional anguish or or just nonsensical thinking. And so you, you know, you begin to, to give up trying to even meditate, trying to, to get something, to get rid of something. So meditation can become another habit, like letting go can become another form of grasping, if you grasp the words. Just get rid of thoughts, get rid of emotions, don't feel anything, is the idea like a fully enlightened arahant doesn't feel emotions. You know, how we idolize, that's a projection of, of an arahant is, you know, the arahant is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned not a person, not a personality. Your personality can never become enlightened, whatever it might be, no matter how spiritually oriented you believe you are, or how worldly you assume you are. They'll never get enlightened, no matter how many beads you count on a rosary, or prayers you make, or chants you chant or retreats you go to. <coughs> but the, the, the uh, teaching is very direct, you know, letting go of conditions. You have to know what grasping is, so grasp conditions. But study it, you know, really tense up. Become obsessed with a thought or a memory. Get really angry and observe anger. Think of all the unfairness, the misery that people have caused you in your life. <laughs> and, you know, and just watch it, you know, how it, you know, you have bodily reactions to it. You grasp it or you try to, you know, rejected or resistant saying a good monk doesn't get angry that's rubbish Ajahn Shah apparently was suggesting to one of his monks I don't know if it was during your days in Wat Papong or not there was one junior monk who was very irritable and Ajahn Chah suggested in the middle of the hot season that he goes back to his hut, close all the shutters in the middle of the day, wraps up in all the blankets and clothing he has, 
and just sit with it. <laughs> in the hot season in Thailand, that's really miserable state to be. <laughs> but you can be mindful of misery. You know, when you're just, when you're blaming, you know, Thailand for its weather, that's suffering. Or you're blaming Ajahn Shah for giving you bad advice, that's, you know, you're, that's, you're, you're creating an idea of Lumpur Cha and advice that's, that's really uncomfortable and miserable. But if you really investigate misery, it doesn't mean you have to become an ascetic. You have to make your life miserable, but use the way you are, what you have, the things that irritate you, the people that you you feel averse to, that you don't like, or like it's like this. Not liking somebody is like this, and stay with that. See how long it lasts. And you begin to realize not liking somebody is a thought that arouses an emotion. And you, you're aware of it, it's like this, it's changing, it, you can't, it has no stability. Unless you grasp it, if it's becoming an obsession, it's because of grasping, not because of the, the memory or the thought. Because memory thoughts, they're they're changing, they're some cars, they're changing conditions. Experiment with yourself, you know, you have the, this is, Buddha's giving you the, the right, the encouragement to investigate life. And that's what, uh, what attracted me to Buddhism in the first place. Because I was brought up as a Christian, which you were told what's right and what's wrong and and what to believe in, and then discovering Buddhism, Buddha Dhamma, it gave, it gave me the, the right to investigate life, to find out what is God? What do you mean by the word God? People say, do you believe in God? Do Buddhists believe in God? Or are Buddhist atheists? You know, I don't know how many times I've been asked that question. Is Buddhism an atheist, humanistic philosophy, not a religion? I've heard that generated towards, towards me. But then what do you mean? You know, it's important to ask yourself, what, what is God? When you're brought up as a Christian or a Jew or a, a, a non-Buddhist country where they believe in God or gods, Buddha gave you the right to to, you know, this encouragement or message, what do you mean by that? It's a word. So, you know, and then, you know, you're told it's, you know, you have pictures, like childlike pictures of an old man with a white beard up in the sky. Is that, you know, that's a very strong image of God in icon, in iconry. Or God is a father, you know, a judge that makes judgments about you. Is that God? Who makes judgments about you? And you begin to observe it's your thoughts that make judgments about you. 
You're the judge of yourself. Your personality is judging you. God doesn't judge. Dhamma doesn't make judgments. But, we, you know, we, we learn precepts and moral precepts and what's right and what's wrong and good and bad and true and false. So we, you know, we, these are judgmental terms. So, you know, when we, when we, when the, the Vatican says that same-sex marriages are, are a sin <laughs> because God said so, you know, what is that? That's a belief, isn't it? That's a belief in God that makes judgments. But when you really investigate reality for yourself, you're not denying God, but you're beginning to realize the perfection of God or Dhamma. In Buddhist terms, we use the word Dhamma. It's non-personal, it's not an old man up in the sky. So this kind of, you know, this is one of the great gifts of being born in, in this human form is we have this investigate, investigator ability to, to challenge life, to not just take what's offered blindly. Well, that requires a willingness to make mistakes, which seems to be an obstacle for many people. Yeah, mistakes are sankaras too. You know, it's like learning to walk. When a, when a little baby's learning to walk, you know, his mother says, you've got two legs, just learn to walk on them. You know, <laughs> it does have two legs, but it hasn't the muscles or the strength or the know-how or developed the habit of walking yet. So mother's right, it has two legs, but it has to crawl first and hold on to furniture and hold on to mother's hand before it really has the confidence to walk. And once it has that confidence, it doesn't need to just press furniture or crawl on the floor or hold onto somebody's hand. It's as simple as that. You know, you, you, you can, you can, you can imagine perfection as an ideal. But perfection is reality, you can't imagine, because everything seems imperfect, because that's the nature of sankharas, of conditions, of all phenomena. Imperfect is not something bad or wrong, it's just pointing to the, the, the pattern of things that begin and end, <clears throat> born and die. And you realize that the, the ego, the sense of a separate self, of a physical body as self, you know, you're attaching to something that, you, you know, is not self at all. Because try to control the body, make it the way you want it to be, not grow old, be beautiful and young forever, you know, eat all the right foods and do, do yoga exercises, you're still going to get old and die. You're still going to get COVID-19, you know, because 
these uh, the conditioned realm is like this. It's it's uh, it's mutable. It's changeable, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's perfect. When the Buddha gave the three characteristics of of all existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta. This is what's common to all sankaras, all phenomena. They're not equal in their quality or abilities, but they're equal in their form, in the way they manifest and disappear. And what is, and, and learning to trust yourself just by observing a thought. You know, it disappears. It is the, the English pronoun, personal pronoun, I. You know, it's one simple letter in the alphabet. And think it, and it's gone. What's left after I disappears? Where does it arise from? Where does it manifest from? Oh, we say the mind. But the mind can is oftentimes used for consciousness, and the consciousness and mind can be very confusing using the two words. But when I use the word mind, it's for uh, the mental phenomena, emotions, mental states that arise and cease. Consciousness is where mind states arise and cease. And where do mind states arise and cease? They don't, you know, it's from this formless, invisible reality of awareness, here and now. And that's all there is. So perfection, when we talk about, in Buddhist terminologies, we talk about Dhamma, when we take refuge in Dhamma, one of the, you know, the main Theravadan ceremonies is, I take refuge in the Dhamma. What are you taking refuge in? Some kind of ideal of something called Dhamma that, that uh, is some, something so remote that you don't know what you're taking refuge in. Or you're taking refuge in Buddha. You're taking refuge in, in a memory of a dead sage. You know, is it, or is it just have, it's just a habit pattern of chanting, of chanting Pali and Theravada Buddhism. Is it just habit pattern, cultural conditioning, religious conditioning, or is it much more profound than that? And this takes the investigating ability to, to realize what Buddha Dhamma Sangha really is. It's not, you know, they're words, they're phenomena, like any other word. So you, you let go of that too. But they're skillful means to remember, to recall here and now, 
as we get carried away with our thoughts, with our emotions, with our sense of duty, responsibility, uh, you know, our position in the society, our relationships, our family, everything you know, kind of manifests in consciousness. And that, that's why we become stressed because, you know, in modern life, with all its modern conveniences, you know, where we don't have to plant rice out in a rice paddy, where we can buy the best kind of rice in a, in a market, where we can store up food, where we can have uh, central heating in our cooties, where, where we have warm clothes to wear, where there is a fairly stable benevolent government. What, what is the problem? You know, we have enough to eat and we're sheltered over the head, <clears throat> guaranteed health care here in Britain. You know, it's a wealthy country. What, what's wrong? And then we think, well, I've got all these responsibilities. I've got children, got a wife, got a, I'm out of work. I've got to get employment. I've got to get something I don't have. I've got to get rid of my bad thoughts. My anger is, is psychologically limiting me. We go to psychologists, psychotherapists to, to find out who we are or what we should get rid of and get, and try to become somebody better. There's always this, this chance that I could become better than what I believe I am. And, and, uh, this, that's also the judgmental, uh, self that, that's always saying you're, you're not as good as you should be. You shouldn't have thought that thought. You shouldn't have said the, what you said to somebody. You've got to be loyal and faithful. You've got to believe in God. You've got to, there's so many shoulds and got to believe conditions in modern life. You believe in democracy. You know, you hear that on the news all the time. I believe in democracy. What do you mean by democracy? You know, so you can, not to get rid of the word, but to, you know, is, is life on the conditional level democratic? Or is democracy a, a beautiful idea? Beautiful ideas are worthwhile in their directions, but the reality of this moment isn't democratic, it's like this. It's not the condition from around the world cannot be perfect because its nature is imperfection, is change. And it doesn't change just for the better. That progress is the ultimate realization that things just get better and better and better and better. We see that that never happens. Things get better, yes, and they, then they get worse. So you have these cycles in economic, economic cycles, social problems, mass immigrations, climate change, your aging, getting old. All these changes are 
are imperfections, aren't they? They're not, they're the downside of what went up, of inspiration, of the ideal democratic system that never changes. But what doesn't change at this very here and now reality? And this you realize for yourself. And all I can do with this, with these reflections or point to it and keep re reminding you and then you, what you trust is your awareness, not what I say. But you can inve investigate what I say. What is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? In terms of experience here and now, What you're saying is quite powerful because basically with your description just now of democracy and climate change and all of that, sounds like you're saying everything's falling apart, the world's going to end, but it's perfectly okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's something we're not used to hearing. <laughs> well, falling apart is impermanent too. <laughs> it's changing. It's like you can, falling apart is a bit too severe. But, you know, like an inhalation or exhalation. You can only inhale so far and you have to exhale. And that's the nature of phenomena of change. That's what it's supposed to do. What arises ceases. The body is supposed to get old and die. That's what it's meant to do, that's, that's its reality, is its, its non-self. It was born, you didn't have to be born, did you? I don't remember it, no. <laughs> no. I don't remember ever asking my parents to be born or gone or anyone else. But I don't remember being born, I just know that the result of my mother giving birth is this. At 86, is like this. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So what's the problem? <laughs> so I don't make a problem about it. I, I still, you know, no matter how many, much I reflect in this way, in the here and now, the body's still going to grow old, get sick and die. And that, and you're not attached to it anymore. You know, it's just doing what it's supposed to be doing. And it's not personal anymore. It's not the, my, I'm old, I'm no longer good looking like I used to be. I, <laughs> my eyes aren't very good, my ears. You know, I can feel sorry for myself. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? <laughs> I can worry about, am I needed or will I be fed? You know, I can, in a month, you know, that's the constant reflection. Yeah. Bindabad is, will you still feed me? <laughs> so, because we're dependent upon other people feeding us. But if I worry about it, then I'm attached to the idea that I'm somebody that has to be fed every day. For example, 
and becoming a bhikkhu, and Rajan Chah's style of teaching was we only had one meal a day. And I was brought up with a mother who insisted I have three square meals a day, otherwise I'd lose my health. So, you know, from babyhood up to the present time, that's the cultural conditioning was about the, you have to have three square meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, in order to remain healthy. And then suddenly, you're in a situation where you only have one meal a day, where you have no choice about the food, you just take what you get. And that would bring up all kinds of anxieties about, you know, the cultural conditioning, my mother's conditioning, my American conditioning was, you know, it was still operating. But the investigation was to investigate one meal a day, is it enough? Is it, you know, is it plenty or am I just caught in the, in that kind of obsession around three meals a day, because that's how I was conditioned. So I used to experiment in the early years of monastic life fasting for a week to see how long I could go without food. I tried experiments with just eating one meal every other day. I did all kinds of experiments, you know, just eating vegetarian food. And, and uh, doing everything to, to explore the eating habit. And then one day, I remember I was becoming obsessed with fasting. And I went to Lung Cha and asked for permission to go on a fast for a week. And he said, why do you have to fast? Why don't you just eat like the rest of the monks? They come and eat their food one meal a day, that's enough. And suddenly something clicked in my mind about, I became obsessed with trying to prove something to myself, how long I could go. It's very egocentric. How long can I last without food? And suddenly I realized that the kind of ideal of the monastic form wasn't ascetic, it wasn't asceticism, but it was just enough. It was, you know, enough to, to live on because for the past 55 years, I've only had one meal a day. And I'm still going strong. So it's, you're learning through, through experiencing and, you, and to experience, you just can't deny, but you can be aware of denial. You can be aware of indulging, of compulsive behavior. Aware when you when you feel you know you get compulsive about your the, your what you look like or you, how clean your apartment is or whatever. You can become a, a, you know obsessed, and obsessive, and compulsive about conditioned realm. But in liberation, is compulsion is a habit pattern you develop that you strongly identify with. 
and to have everything in in proper order, then you feel at e more at ease than when things are out of order. But you also are mindful when everything's out of order, like the world is falling apart like this. Trust that awareness. That's your refuge. When the world's falling apart, let it. And and but don't you fall apart? Because this is the this is the freedom that we have through this realization of Dhamma, of reality, of ultimate reality. Because everything's going to fall apart in the end, we're all going to die, and that's falling apart. Everything that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me, is one of our monastic reflections. And I remember when I first heard this reflection, well, that's really depressing. Everything that's mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Uh, thought, you know, in terms of a personality, that's depressing. Because personally, everything that's mine, beloved and pleasing, I want to keep. And everything that isn't beloved and pleasing, I want to get rid of. And you can be aware of this desire to hold on to, you know, habits, compulsive habits, obsessions of mind, fears, anxieties, worry. You know, you can, you can see yourself become obsessed. And when you're trying to get rid of it, you're still attached to it. It's still grasping in a negative grasp. Pushing away, resisting life rather than opening to it. So the invitation of the Buddha is to open to reality here and now. Be mindful. Release your faith. Trust this. Thank you very much, Lombardi.